You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. If you are uh, watching or listening online, thank you for tuning in. If you're a guest with us this morning and you are wondering what is wrong with this church, uh, we uh, put out a poll a few weeks ago online for our church to vote on what I would preach on, as you could tell by the newscast. Uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and Genesis 11, 1 through 9 were the passages. Whichever passage got the most votes, I will be preaching on this morning. The idea behind this was really quite simple, that uh, it's the Sunday after midterms, and uh, usually elections bring out the very worst in us. 
And uh, so we wanted to have a little bit of fun, provide a little levity in an otherwise uh, contentious time of the year, and uh, give you the opportunity to vote for something that doesn't decide the fate of the entire world, right? Because regardless of of which passage wins this morning, uh, we're going to still be gathering together as God's people. We're going to open God's perfect word, and we're going to allow the text to speak to us. Uh, The results are in from the vote, and uh, I'll be honest with you, it was never close. Um, There was always a very clear leader throughout the entire vote process. There were, uh, by the way, no mail-in ballots. Um, We did not take any days to to count the votes. It was was a pretty simple process. Uh, We're confident that voter fraud is down to zero, although one of my elders did inform me before the service began that he goes, yeah, we voted twice. I went, okay, well, good. Throw security out the door. (laughs) Without further ado, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them and turn to Genesis chapter 11? Genesis chapter 11 is the one that won. And I'm going to be honest with you, I love that this passage won. I love the book of Genesis. It is uh, honestly probably my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, I love this particular story, the Tower of Babel is uh, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. I'm really excited to preach through it. It's been several years since I've been in this passage. And honestly, it's a very timely passage for us, given uh, that the election season has just come to an end. Midterms just ended. The dust is still settling. And election season reveals to us what most of us already know at this point, which is that the country that we live in is far more divided than we might like to admit. And, And beyond that, in an age where... You have some uh, global things happening, Russia attacking Ukraine, rumors of other wars in other places around the world. More and more, we are faced with the reality uh, that the world, no matter how connected we might be through social media, no matter how many people are calling for unity uh, over and over and over again, the world is a dreadfully divided place. And Genesis 11 provides an answer for why why we are the way we are. One of the most uh, interesting things about this passage to me, before we actually jump into the text, is where it fits within the narrative of, of Genesis. Um, it feels when you get to this story, if you read Genesis from the beginning, and, and you get to chapter 11, it feels very sudden and very out of place. So let me give you an example of why. Genesis chapters 6 through 9 covers the story of Noah. We're all familiar with Noah, Noah's ark. So we get the the construction of the ark, the flood, Uh, God floods the world. uh, Genesis 9 ends with Noah uh, landing on dry ground. He worships, he he, uh, sacrifices, God says, uh, meats on the menu um, for the first time ever. Um, There's just a lot of trauma in Noah's life at this point. And then Uh, As a nice, happy ending for him, he dies. Um, After he dies, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, begin to populate the world. And and Genesis 10 provides three genealogies of each of his sons. And if you jump ahead to Genesis 11.10, right after Babel, you get another genealogy of Shem, a second genealogy of Shem. But this one is even longer, and it leads to a man... In verse 26, named Terah, 
who fathered Abram. This is the same Abram, by the way, uh, who becomes Abraham and forms a major foundational component to Old Testament theology. Abraham is the great patriarch. And his, his story begins in chapter 12. So you can see this kind of scope of Noah's story, Noah's sons and their families, which lead to Abram, and then Abram's story. And sandwiched in between all of this specifically in these genealogies, is this random, seemingly random, story of the Tower of Babel. And it just kind of seems out of place. But if you pay close attention, you begin to notice that each of these genealogies share similar phrasing in them. And just as a side, uh, kind of an important tactic for you as you learn to study the Bible, uh, it is important to to develop the the skill of identifying patterns as you're studying the Bible. Anytime that you see a word or a phrase repeated over and over and over again, that is the Bible's way of telling you it's trying to emphasize something. This is important. Whatever is being repeated, it's important. Pay attention to it. And we get this kind of repetition or pattern in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, In Japheth's genealogy, he's the first one that's listed. At the very end of it, in Genesis chapter uh, 10, verse 5, it says, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. If you go to Ham's genealogy, which is next, to the end of it, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. You go to the end of Shem's genealogy, verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. In other words, there's an emphasis out of each of these genealogies that multiple people groups are coming from each of these three sons, all of whom speak different languages, they possess different lands, they form separate nations, they have different national identities. And then the whole chapter ends in verse 32, it sort of summarizes everything. And it says this, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So get this, we're left with the impression at the end of chapter 10, that from these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the entire world is populated into various nations, all of whom speak different languages and have different cultural identities, much like the world that we live in today. But this raises a really important question, not only for us as the reader, but certainly for Moses' audience as well, who has just escaped the evil nation of Egypt and has not yet entered into the land of the Canaanites that God has promised them because of the hostility between the two people groups. They, like we, might be wondering when we read that the world is diverse, divided, populated in several different areas, and filled with different languages, they might be wondering if everyone in the entire world all came from the same family, Why does everyone hate each other? How did we all become so divided? What happened? Why did humanity spread out over all these different places and how did they become so distinctly different? Like what went wrong? And right conveniently located in the middle of these genealogies is a story that gives us that answer. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, one through nine. It explains what went wrong, how we got where we are today. Why there's such a sense of disconnectedness in the world. We get those answers in this passage. So let's jump in, and we're going to read the, uh, the first four verses together. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The first thing that we're going to notice in verses 1 through 4, sort of the theme or the big idea of verses 1 through 4, is what I would call man's arrogance. Man's arrogance. The first four verses really highlight, ultimately, the arrogance of humanity. But there is also highlighted in this passage a deep sense of unity in humanity as well, isn't there? They're very united in a lot of different ways. Let me name a few of them. They're united in communication. That's the first thing we see. Uh, The Hebrew here, you know, it says in the English that they all had one language. The Hebrew literally reads, they had one lip and one word. One lip and one word. In other words, they were completely unimpeded by language barriers. The entire earth could communicate without any problems at all. No need for translators. No, there's nothing, there's no barriers at all for their communication. That is not the case for our world today. Linguists estimate uh, approximately 7,100 languages on the face of the earth. Uh, of those languages that have what we would call an orthography, which is a written system. Uh, most languages, by the way, do not. So out of the 7,100, somewhere close to, I think, 5,000, 4,500, 5,000 of them are oral only. They're, they're verbal. They have no, no way of actually writing any of it down. But of the ones that do, uh, they differ in their alphabet systems. They differ in syntax, morphological features, sociolinguistic phenomena. They're very, very different. Language learning is challenging. Language acquisition is very hard. Uh, In some languages, you have to learn how to think differently before you can learn to speak them because the way they form are are completely different than uh, English and and even Spanish and some of the languages that you might be familiar with. So they're united in their communication. They're united in the direction in which they are headed and from which they were uh, coming. It it says, notice that it says that they moved from the east. Now, this may surprise some of you, but this actually hints at Uh, their rebellious spirit. This is telling something about the rebellion that is in their heart. How do I know that? Because the Bible assigns, specifically in the Old Testament, uh, significance with directional meaning. What I mean by that is that there are times you'll notice that directions seem to indicate more than just simply the direction they're going. For example, uh, anytime you see Jerusalem talked about in the Bible, you will notice that regardless of where a person is coming from, they are always going up to Jerusalem. It's always up to Jerusalem. That's because Jerusalem was historically the place where God's presence dwelled in the temple. It was a place of worship. Worship moves upward, so there's an upward sense of Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of assigned as God's city, city of God. So you're always going up to it no matter where you're coming from. That's helpful for us people down in the south. Because it's like, yeah, I'm going up to San Antonio. Yeah, I'm going up to Mexico. Like, I just, I can't break myself of it. Um, It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, Egypt. How about this one? Anytime you see Egypt in the Bible, you're going to go down to Egypt, no matter where you're coming from. North, south, east, but it doesn't matter. You're going down to Egypt. Egypt is a place that represents oppression. It represents evil. Uh, You go down to Egypt from wherever you are coming from. The direction east signifies rebellion. 
It's connected with rebellion often. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, after Adam and Eve are uh, expelled from the garden because of sin, it says that God removes them from the garden and placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. When Lot leaves Abraham some chapters later uh, to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and settle there, it says that he traveled eastward to Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact that these people are coming from the east signifies they're coming from a place of rebellion. Not only that, but they're united in location. Notice that they all settle in the same place. They're in the plains of the land of Shinar. Now, another helpful tip for you when you're studying specifically Genesis, uh, but but really any part of the Bible, is it's helpful, I think, to circle uh, city names. Because what you're going to find is that as you read through the Bible more and more, um, the ancient Near East, geographically, is not a very big place. You're going to see a lot of these same places come up over and over and over again, and it's cool to see how sometimes places are sort of notorious for bad things happening. Sometimes places have bad things in the past, but then God redeems them for the good. It's a really kind of fascinating way of, of looking at it. Shinar has significance. Shinar becomes eventually what we know as the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, Babylon, of course, is not a good place. They are enemies of Israel. They are mentioned in Revelation uh, as very negative. (laughs) It's not a good place at all. Uh, And remember that this story, Babel, is in the middle of these genealogies. And if you pay attention, uh, I I mentioned Shem's line leads to Abraham. So the people of God, their descendancy comes from Shem. Most of God's people's enemies come from Ham. So uh, Canaan is a big one that's mentioned. It gives special treatment in Genesis 10. Uh, They're, of course, about to go into the promised land, and the Canaanites possessed that land at the time. But there's actually another person mentioned in Ham's genealogy that is significant as well, a guy by the name of Nimrod, which is just a great name, isn't it? Which, by the way, I mean, I said this for service, you know, uh, evangelical modern Christian women have this sort of knack for naming their kids after Bible figures, but you're very selective, like, I'm just saying, Nimrod is on the table, and none of you seem to, none of you seem to want to name your son Nimrod, and don't. It's, it's actually not a, he's not a good character. Don't do that. But if you notice in Genesis 10.10, 10, it says, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. So they are situated in the plains of land that was taken by Ham's descendants, which should indicate to you this is about to go badly because the people groups in Ham's line seem to be bent towards not what God wants. Once again, uh, the placement of the story is not totally random. Um, So they're united in language, they're united in direction, they're united in location, and probably most critical to this story, they're united in their arrogance. They're united in arrogance. They have all of this unity, and it doesn't make anything better. I want you to think about that for a minute. They have all of this unity, and actually things are worse. They're just better at rebellion because they can do it all together. They can unify around the wrong things. And in their arrogance, they determine, we are going to build a tower, and it's going to be the greatest tower that the world has ever seen. And it's kind of funny in this passage, you miss it in, in, in English, and especially if you don't have historical context, but, but verse 4 They say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This practice of burning bricks was uh, an ancient tradition in architecture that was known to Babylonian culture. 
And, and remember, Moses is the one writing this, and so he's a little bit mocking them here because burned bricks were not as superior as what Israelites used, which were the stronger and more reliable Palestinian stone. And so Moses is pointing this out a little bit to mock them, right? He, he's, he's kind of making them look foolish. We're going to build this huge tower, and it's going to be amazing, and it's going to reach up into the, the sky. Oh, yeah? What are you going to use? Burn brick. I mean, this would, be like, this would be like in a modern vernacular, you mean this tower isn't made in America? It's going to fall apart immediately, right? I mean, this is kind of what he's doing here. But here's the most shocking part about the arrogance of these people. They actually believed that they could do this. Like, they actually thought, this is going to work. We're going we're gonna to make this tower and it's going to go up into the heavens. And, but you need to understand why they were doing this. Because it, 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 you've probably heard this story before, and, and I guarantee you some of you have heard this story told wrong. Why do they build the tower into the heavens? They do so because they believe if we can build this tower, we'll gain an audience with God, and then maybe we can renegotiate the terms of the fall a little bit. He's going to have to pay attention to us. If we do this, you know, he's going to have to notice us. Most of the time when Babel is told, this story is told, it usually is told from the position that they're going to build a tower because they want to start a war with God, right? They want to take God's throne. That's why he has to change their languages because he's afraid. And so they got to, they got to, you know, he's, they're going to build this tower and they're going to take his throne. There's no evidence of that at all in the text. What the text does say is that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted God's attention. They wanted to be put on his map. They wanted to prove, look what we're capable of. Look what we've done, God. You got to notice me now. And I mean, isn't this, aren't we no different than they are? Don't we still do this today? If I can just do enough, God's going to have to take notice of me, right? I just need to perform better. I need to serve God more. I need to be more available for other people. I need to do this and this and this and this. And then God will have no choice. He will have to notice me. And really the underlying root of this sort of thinking is just arrogance. To think that we might demand God's attention through our own actions. When we think this way, we're no different than the people of Babel. The Bible has a lot to say about arrogance. There's a lot to say about arrogance. Psalm 101, verse 5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 16, 5 says, whoever, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Paul, the apostle, talks about, in 2 Timothy, a time when people will depart from the truth and they will desire teachers and preachers who will only say to them the things that they kind of want to hear, the tickling of ears. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he says, these people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Paul, by the way, just described the entire state of the world in 2022. Here's the thing about arrogance. Let me give you a truth about arrogance. Arrogance is a phenomenal motivator, but a terrible coach. It's a phenomenal motivator. It's a terrible coach. Arrogance will pump you up, right? It'll be your biggest cheerleader. It will make you think that you can do anything. You can be anything you want to be. 
right? You can do anything you set your mind to. You can build a tower that's going to reach into the heavens. God will have to reward you. You can do it. Just work a little bit harder. Go a little bit further. You're going to do this, and God is going to have no choice. And you believe it, right? You're motivated by this kind of arrogant thinking. And before you know it, you are on level 10 working as hard as you can towards one of the worst plans you've ever come up with. (laughs) Arrogance is a phenomenal motivator. Really, really terrible coach. So we see man's arrogance in verses 1 through 4. They are all together. They have built a massive tower. And look at verse 5. We see God's awareness of what is happening. Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So get this. The, <laughs> the tower has been built. It's big and it's impressive. It's reaching up into the heavens. I mean, it is a modern marvel, an innovation in architectural excellence. This is their big moment. I mean, this is what they have been working so hard for. And notice, they accomplish their purpose. God does notice the tower. He becomes aware of their efforts, but not in the way that they were hoping. You don't get the the real force of irony here again, in the English as you do in Hebrew, but, but pay attention to that phrase, the Lord came down. The Lord came down. In, in English, it just seems kind of like they built the tower, and now the Lord has come down from heaven onto earth to see what it is that they have done. That's not the imagery that is conveyed in the Hebrew language. The word, the verb for the Lord came down, it's a word that means to stoop over or bend over. In other words, there's tremendous irony here. The people had built a giant tower, massive, extends all the way to the heavens, a modern marvel. And and, and the same God that Isaiah says sits above the circle of the earth, he has to get down on a knee and bend over to see it. It's just this giant marvel masterpiece, and it's like a little Lego set, miniature Lego set to God. He's like, what was that down there? Ah, that's cute. It's, 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 it's pathetic in his presence. But, but I do think, so this is, I think, just an interesting connection. Our greatest efforts are, are, are tiny, right, in comparison to the, the magnificence of who God is. That's one of the takeaways that we can get from this. But, but there is, I think, another way perhaps of thinking about this passage that's equally uh, important, and that is this. As seemingly small and little as this little tower and act of rebellion is, God is still aware of it. So, so check this out. In spite of, of all that God oversees, he's aware of every small detail. He's aware of what we are doing. So yes, as Isaiah says, God sits on the circle of the earth, right? He, he is enthroned over all creation. But also, what does Proverbs 15.3 say? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let me give you a truth, and this is an important one, one that I want you to, to chew on for the rest of the morning. Our sin never escapes God's awareness. It never escapes God's awareness. Here's the deal. Some of you think you're getting away with it, Right? You think, you've, you, you think you've gotten away with it. No one is aware of what you've done. I can keep doing this in secret. No one has to know. 
That is never true as long as you were alive. It's never true. The eyes of the Lord see everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Not your thoughts, not your actions, none of it. It's all laid to bear in front of him. So our, our works, on the one hand, they are seemingly nothing in comparison to the enormity of God, and yet God is aware of every small detail at all times. So we've seen God's awareness of man's arrogance. Let's look at the last three verses here. We see God's adjustment. Read verses 6 through 9 with me. It says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Notice the let us. This is a a reference. uh, it's, It's hinting out the Trinity, right? God is a Three in one, Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. You ever heard babbling fool? That's where that comes from. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, right off the bat, I want to acknowledge one part of this passage that is at best confusing you and maybe at worst even concerning to you, and that is in verse 6. Notice what it says again. It says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. It's tempting to read this passage and think, well, if God is all-powerful, then why is he worried about all of this, right? Why is he so concerned that nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them? If, is God worried about this, really? Is he afraid of them? Is that why he has to confuse their language? This is where that idea of them trying to dethrone him and start a war comes from, is he seems almost scared that, that now they can do anything they want. And that seems like a reasonable question but it's formed around an incorrect understanding of the nature of God. If God were like us, limited in power, weak, insecure, it would make total sense to ask a question like this. But that is not who God is at all. God is not like us. He is not limited in power. He is perfect and holy and all-powerful. He fears nothing. He fears no one. He bows to no one. And beyond that, understand this, he is our heavenly father. He he is the, the author and sustainer of life. He loves his creation. And even in spite of our stupidity because of our sin, he loves his people made in his image. So get this, God's concern for them that nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them, it's not a concern for what they might do to him. It's a concern for what they might do to themselves. In other words, he's not acting out of fear. He's acting out of mercy. God dispersed them over the face of the earth. He confused their languages to keep them from crossing into irredeemable territory that would only lead to death and sorrow. So Babel is an interesting story because it's a story about discipline against sin and rebellion, but it is a merciful discipline. And by the way, discipline is always merciful. Condemnation is, is where justice and all these other things come in. But, but discipline is a mercy. And, and notice that the passage ends the same way that it began. In fact, I, I didn't go into this, uh, I, w- I won't go into this much. If, if you have taken my Old Testament class on Wednesday nights, 
We go a lot further into Babel in terms to its structure, but uh, verses 1 through 9 form what we would call Hebrew chiasm, which means that uh, the verses correspond to one another. So verses 1 and 9 are, are kind of mirror, 2 and 8, 3 and 7, 4 and 6, with 5 right in the middle. 5, by the way, is where God comes down to see what they have done. That's emphasizing sort of the big moment in the story. Verses 1 through 9 are connecting to one another. It begins, verse 1, the whole earth, it ends, the face of all the earth. But there are pretty dramatic changes in between, are there not? Verse 1, the whole earth was together and unified. Verse 9, it's now divided. Verse 1, they were all in one place together in the plains of the land of Shinar, but now they're scattered over all the earth. Verse 1, they had one language, one lip, one word. Now in verse 9, their languages have been confused. In other words, through the course of this story, God has made some adjustments, hasn't he? And this is what he does to us today as well. I want you to connect with that reality. That whenever we veer off course, he makes adjustments to our lives. God, understand this. If you are a Christian, God's chief goal for you is not that you would be happy or wealthy or healthy or have great success. His chief goal for you is that you would become day-to-day more like Jesus. That's it. That's the, that is the, what is the will of God for your life? It's to become like Christ. Romans 8. It is to make you like Jesus. That means that whenever you move off course and walk in disobedience, God is going to mercifully discipline you by making adjustments, not to punish you, Romans 8.1, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's going to make adjustments not to punish, but to discipline mercifully to get you back on track so that you continue to become more like Jesus. In other words, the adjustments in our lives are a good thing. They don't feel like a good thing in the beginning, but when we look back in retrospect, we can often see how these adjustments were actually a very good thing. It reminds me of a, a, a video that I saw several years ago now on Facebook. Uh, it was a, a guy that, that had recorded this whole process of him. He lived out in the country with his wife, and uh, it, was, it was in one of those houses where, where you didn't really have like a, an actual driveway. You just sort of like pull up and park, right? Um, and he had, he had raked all of the leaves around his house into this massive pile. It was like a six-foot pile by seven-foot pile. I mean, just gigantic. And, and his plan, the, the genius plan, was to uh, put the leaf pile about three or four feet to the left of where his wife every day normally pulls up and parks. You might see where this plan is going. The plan was for him to hide in the leaf pile and so that when she drives up and unsuspectingly opens her door to get out and go in like a regular person, that he would maniacally jump out of the leaf pile, risk divorce, and scare the you-know-what out of her. Every guy is like, what a good idea. (laughs) And so he is uh, recording the process of doing this. And so the pile is done. He's got his little GoPro set up on the porch. He climbs into the leaf pile. You know, he's like sneaking in and all that. And, and he has edited it because it, several minutes had apparently gone by. He got in a little prematurely. And so the little subtitles, like, you know, several moments had gone by. And then you hear off in the background a phone begin to ring, like a, a home line, a phone line, right? They're in the country. So they, they, this is, they're doing it the Lord's way without cell phones and, and all that nonsense. And so the, I'm just kidding. I hate my phone. It's just, it's a thing. So the phone begins to ring. 
And you can see him get out of the leaf pile, and he's like kind of scurrying inside, and he's muttering under his breath. He's like so frustrated that like, this is ruining my plan, you know? And so he gets inside and, and is answering the phone. And right about that time, in the frame of the, the video, his wife's Ford Explorer comes in, and she <laughs> annihilates that pile of leaves. Something in her wild hair, as she's driving home, thought, you know, that good-for-nothing husband has had that pile of leaves there for several days now, and it needs to be hit by this car. <laughs> and she just bulldozes over it. And, and right after that, he comes out, pale as a ghost, realizing, had that phone call not just happened, I'd be dead right now. See, I think what happens here in Genesis 11 is that Babel gets a phone call that looks like it ruins their plans and actually really saves their life. I realize it's easier to say this from the pulpit than it is when you're in the middle of the valley in a trial or in a time that is very difficult, but, but if you can get yourself to the place where you are able to say, praise God when he ruins my plans, that's a good place to be. It's hard to see it in the moment. I understand that. It looks like things are just going wrong. And, and listen to me, sometimes things do just go wrong. We live in a fallen world. But sometimes it's not that things are going wrong, it's that God is needing to make an adjustment in your life out of mercy because if your plans go on uninterrupted, it's only going to lead to sorrow and death in a way that he did not intend for his creation to experience. God as a loving father sometimes prevents us from getting our way as an act of mercy because he loves us. And that is a good thing, not a bad thing. I want to give you some closing thoughts on this passage. I mentioned at the beginning that I thought this was a timely passage for Election Sunday. And I want to explain why. Why I think this passage in particular is quite helpful for where we are right now in the world. First, Babel explains why the world is so divided. And we've already kind of talked about that a little bit, but I want to just reemphasize it. The world is divided. It does not take a rocket scientist to figure that out. And Genesis 11 explains why, how we got here how this all happened. And, and I want you to get this. I want you to connect with this because this is an important thing for you to consider. That as bad as the world is today, had God not confused the languages and we were all still one people and one language group, the world would be infinitely worse. If God in his mercy confuses languages and separates people, it stands to reason that if you remove mercy from the equation, it's actually a lot worse. Being united, the idea of unity, is actually a bad thing. Which brings me to my second point. Unity is not what the world needs. That may sound controversial to some of you. The answer for the world is not more unity. There's all kinds of cries for unity. The problem with unity, though, is that there has to be a center to that unity that we are unified around. And who gets to decide that? There's, a, there's a, a social, political theory right now known as globalism, that, that we just need to be more together, right? We need, we need to be more unified. We need to be more connected. We need to, we need to lose our, our national identity and become more of a global unit. But see, the problem is that Genesis 11 demonstrates what globalism actually looks like in a fallen world, and it's bad. It's very bad. So unity, understand this, by itself is not what the world needs. The world does not need more unity. The world needs Jesus. 
The world needs the gospel. It's through the gospel that we become unified unto righteousness. It's through the gospel that we become unified in our thoughts such that our thoughts become his thoughts. That our actions become the actions he wills for us to carry out in this world. We become unified around the truth of God, not my own dumb opinions. The world does not need unity. It needs the gospel, which brings me to my third point, which is this, that Christ unites what Babel divides. You know, this sudden confusion in speech presents a huge problem for the people at Babel, doesn't it? There's, There's so much so that they stop building the city and the tower. They just stop. They just quit, and they disband. They're not able to effectively communicate anymore, so let's just quit trying. But then check this out. We get to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 4, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And he says this, for at that time, he's talking about a future time, for at that time, this is God speaking, I will change the speech of the peoples, plural, to a pure speech, singular, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Zephaniah is prophesying about a time that is going to be ultimately fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. If you remember, Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches a sermon about Christ and him crucified. And it says that the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. How is this happening? We don't even speak the same language and yet we're all hearing the same thing. It's because Zephaniah 3.4 is coming true because the power of the Holy Spirit is undoing the curse of Babel. He's overcoming the barriers of language that prevent us from from communicating. He overcomes the barriers of national identity as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 says that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, check this out, in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus' answer to the curse of Babel is not a superior language. It is not a superior nation. His answer to all of this division is the church. It always has been. It always will be. The church is how reconciliation comes to a divided and a broken world. The church is what brings ultimate unity around the gospel. This is the, there is no plan B. There is no like, well, what if this doesn't work? This is it. This is God's plan, the church. So so hear me when I say this. This is very important for you to get this. If you feel a deep sense of dissatisfaction with regard to how the world is today, the single greatest way that you can make an impact on the world around you is not through voting, although vo- voting is very important, civic duty that every Christian should participate in. It's not through political discourse, although political discourse is necessary in a fallen world with nations. The single biggest way that you can impact your city, your state, your country, and ultimately the world is through the gospel. Not just talking about it, but sharing it. There was so much talk this past week about Gen Z, right, ruining everything in this election, which by the way, as a millennial, I'm happy to hear because we've been getting crap for 15 years. (laughs) So it's just good to see someone else taking it for once. Gen Z, welcome to the party. 
But listen to me, let's just assume for a minute that this is true and that Gen Z is like a major part of this, like they're, they're misguided and they've been led down this path of secularism and humanism and postmodernism. All of that is very likely very true. Here's how you change their heart, not through political discourse, not through telling them they're dumb for voting the way that they vote, but by sharing Jesus with them and discipling them into faith. That's how hearts change. There is no other way. You cannot legislate peace in the hearts of people. It doesn't work. The law condemns. The law brings death, but grace brings life. Christ is the answer. Now, some of you may feel very uncomfortable with that. I don't know how to share my faith, Pastor Derek. I don't know know what to do. I don't know how to talk about it. Well, I've got good news. We are offering a class starting in two weeks on Sunday morning, second service, that Michael Lewis, our apologist in residence, is going to be leading. Uh, some of you have taken classes with him before. He did uh, most recently, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which was uh, a really remarkable class. He's doing a class this time with a book called Tactics. It's a very different kind of class than what he's done before. Uh, the atheist class was one that was really more centered around uh, demonstrating the, the actually that you need more faith to be an atheist than you do to be a person who believes in a higher power, right? And, This class, Tactics, is all about learning tactics for how to share your faith in everyday conversations. How do I do that? How do I, you know, do I like walk up and just with a megaphone, have you repented? No. (laughs) It's a really terrible way, by the way, to share your faith. You just sound angry. Maybe you are. Maybe you need an anger and hurts class here. Um, Tactics will teach you how to do it naturally, just in the course of conversation. It is open. It is ready for sign-up. If you have the Church Center app, you can pull your phone open right now. Click Groups, bottom, middle button on that app. Hit Other Groups, and it's the only one there. Big letters that says Tactics. Sign up for it. It's coming in two weeks. It's going to be an amazing experience for you. You may have never shared your faith before. And, And the Holy Spirit may be right now going like, Hey, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room. You've never done this. Learn how. God may use you as an agent of change and an agent of, of the gospel that you, you could never imagine. I hear it all the time, people that did not feel comfortable doing it, and they learned, and they started doing it, and it was like a drug. They were like, I got to do that as much as I can, because they, they didn't realize what they were missing until they started doing it. It's so important. If you are dissatisfied with the world around you, share Jesus. It's that simple. It starts here. Search right here in the east side of Fort Worth or wherever you live, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your social groups, share the gospel, invite them to church, go to a Bible study with them. It's basic Christian disciplines. And then trust that the Holy Spirit is going to guide their heart to see the world rightly, to see people rightly. The Lord will take care of the rest. All we have to do is what we've been assigned to do which is make disciples of the nations. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for a time that we can have a little bit of fun, a little bit of levity, but, but also be uh, deeply impacted by your, your living and breathing word. Uh, how we, we love you and we thank you that, that you are a God of, of mercy, uh, that you do make adjustments in our lives. We, we rarely enjoy those adjustments when they're happening, but God, sometimes you give us the, the blessing of, of being able to look back in retrospect and see how some of those things were the most important things that have happened uh, that have led to this moment of, of loving you and following you. And so we thank you, God, that you are greater 
uh, than our fears and, and that you have the answers when we don't and that you lovingly lead us to become more like your son, Jesus, for your glory, for our benefit. We thank you for this time. I thank you for this body. And uh, I just pray that, that you would continue to impress upon us the, the desire to see the, the, the lost saved, uh, to see um, light move into darkness, to be salt of the earth, to follow what you have commanded us to do, God. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, don't get used to this, all right? It's not happening. It may happen every now and again. We'll see. Uh, we've got a lot of fun things still happening for the rest of this month. Of course, uh, November 27th, Advent begins, so the, the church will be decorated up. We may even do a couple of Christmas songs, uh, and so that'll be fun. Some of you are like, yay! Some of you are like, no! Um, but we're, we're really looking forward to that. Next Wednesday, I just want to reiterate this, the, uh, the Thanksgiving potluck in the gym is going down. We'd love to have you. Uh, register on the Church Center app. Let us know what you're going to be bringing, and we will see you then. God bless you. Have a good rest of your week.